This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Ever wonder about the stories of the women around you? We wanted to create an intentional space for women to share the wisdom they have gained through life experiences. Tune in to be in awe of some of the Wonder Woman in our midst. Wondering Woman on ORFM Dunedin. Kia ora and welcome to this episode of Wondering Women. Today I have with me um, Dr. Mariska Kapmeyer. She is a lecturer in the National Center for Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Otago. Um, so it's great to have Mariska here with us today. Um, and we're just going to have a little chat like we always do um, about Mariska's life and work and what makes her tick as a woman and just learn a bit about her and and some wisdom that she has to share with us. So welcome, Mariska. Here I Amy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's exciting to have you. And I was thinking as I was introducing you, we're quite lucky here in Dunedin and specifically at Otago to have the National Center for Peace and Conflict Studies, aren't we? Because it's the only one in, in Aotearoa, isn't it? Yes, like it, it, honestly, I do think it's a quite a special place. Like, so a, it's the only one in Aotearoa, and also, to my knowledge, it's the only one in the Australia Australia Asian areas. Okay. And what makes it really special is um, it is very interdisciplinary because, like, if you think about peace and conflict, it is such a complex field with so many different layers, and you need different, many different questions to ask in order to answer the question: How can we move to a sustainable peace? How can we actually move to a world where people live in harmony with each other and the environment? And um, and so one discipline it's, uh, by itself is not able to answer that question. And so the faculty at NCPEX, how we call it, the National Center for Peace and Public Studies, we are quite interdisciplinary. But so are also our students, and our students tend to come all over the world with all different kinds of walks of life, different takes on peace and conflict, and it's a vibrant and sometimes challenging um, environment to be in. But overall, like they're incredibly enriching. Yeah, oh, that's really cool. I think we're fortunate to have it, and I think the area of study is so important, especially in these times. I guess all all times, but um, and I should mention um, Mariska's. Uh, coming to us um, via Zoom uh, because of our COVID restrictions here at the studio. Um, so it might sound like she's not right here in the studio. It's because she's not. <laughs> so oh, thanks for that little uh, synopsis about the center. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what your work, um, your research involves in this at the center there? Sure. So like my background is in social and peace psychology. So in social psychology or peace psychologists, we tend to think about groups, right? Not so much about individuals, but more about groups. And the question which drives my work as a researcher, but also as a like person who tries to change, like to do some contribution to improving living situations, more like how, how can groups who have experienced either violence between each other or centuries of oppressions that we have also here in Aotearoa, how can those groups start to break the cycle of violence and start envisioning an interdependent future that they live with each other? Hmm. And at the core for me, it's, it's really, it's about trust. Because we cannot expect, like when you're thinking about the context of a civil war, where people, that groups are very busy and very actively trying to kill each other. 
or taking each other's land and really destroying each other's livelihoods. In order to move out of that, there has to be some trust. But such a trust, it cannot be just demanded. It has to be earned. It's very fragile. And that is pretty much what tries my research. It's really question, how do we break the cycle of violence? Hmm. And how do we start slowly but truly build trust so groups can move closer, like closer to this interdependent future with each other? Wow. That's that's great work and such a huge huge area to undertake but so important i mean in the history of the world just conflicts are running through my mind about um you know northern ireland and uh well just everywhere in the world and how if there has been any peace and resolution it's been through dialogue and i guess is that where the trust is built through talking to each other and getting to know each other um, at a later point, yes. So like, we cannot build trust without having engagement with each other. But it's also about breaking down negative stereotypes and perception of each other. So right, like the so, uh, media plays an incredible important role. What is taught in school curriculums is really important because uh, so to break down like conflict drives strongly if it's based on an us versus them, us as the in group, and we are. We are different from them. And quite often, particularly when we think about conflict, the identity of a group, like right, like if you think about Northern Ireland, at one at times it was like being Protestant meant I was being Protestant because I was not Catholic. Mm. So now we have like two identities, not only do I highly identify, identify with my group, which I need to protect from a whole side out group, but my identity of this group was also maintained by not being the others. So how can we move closer towards each other and changing that perception, it becomes often a threat to its own identity. So overcoming this aspect of them, breaking down negative stereotypes, that is also a very first step. Hmm. And dialogue is a wonderful, wonderful engagement where we can bring groups together, where we are, like particularly we have this tool called intergroup dialogue, where we bring um, participants from both sides towards each other. Uh, to visit each other. Um, I have worked in Moldova, which is a small country in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And after the Soviet Union collapsed, we had Transnistrians who wanted to be part of Russia. And we had the Moldovans who wanted to, who, who spoke more Romanian, which was oppressed during the Soviet Union, and they wanted to be like their own country. And tw after 20 years, it was a very solidified us versus them, us Moldovans, we speak Romanian, and we're not like you, the Transnistrians, and vice versa. So we start bringing those crews members together in one room and we train them to become mediators. Mm. And the idea was not that they, like this person A, start trusting person B from the other side, but really that they came together as representative of each group and therefore the experience with each other could be generalized to the whole group. Hmm. Wow, amazing. Yeah. And, and what you're talking about identity, like that's, as humans, it's so important to us who we are and where we come from. And and, yeah. and so I guess I wonder if part of it is finding out who we are and, and feeling comfortable in that, even though others might not be the same as us. Is that, is that part of the work? How do we, how do we not be threatened by somebody who doesn't identify in the same way that we do? Yeah, so that is one of the challenge, and it's uh, the, that is what happens particularly when it can be in the context of conflict, right? Like if it, if it's more harmonious and stable, it is it is still challenging to open up what we call the intergroup um, boundaries and have like some malleability there, so we are open towards others. Mm. But the problem, what conflict does, it is a catalyzator, which really 
overemphasize the importance of a close in-group identity, just us, not the others. And we get threatened mm. by the perception of the others. Mm. Sometimes it's a realistic threat, mm. which, but, and that is, but, but quite more often it's a symbolic threat. The fear of if we are opening up our country, we're losing our identity. And mm. if you are going to stay, maybe stay with our Torah, some of the discourse we have here taps into this one. What happens if becoming a truly bicultural country? What happens if you're becoming a multicultural country? It is often paired with a perception of threat, mm. symbolic threats that if I, as a white New Zealander, might lose something, which made me, which made my group us, which gave me an understanding where I'm sitting in society, what our values are, it gave me some predictability how things are supposed to be. Mm. So here, it, it, it brings it back to trust, doesn't it? Mm. Like, right? Like, so how can we build trust? Let's just move forward, that is welcoming and expanding our self-understanding who defines the in-group, that that is kind of like not a threatening thing, but something enriching. And so some of the ways we try to build on that is having a larger, a common in-group identity, something which is a broader tent, which has room for different kinds of identities, but still pulled together and are like, and this can be different kinds of labels, it can be like us as humans, us as Kiwis, like but something which allows us to identify with each other and takes away this thread, like by opening up the tent, I will not lose something. Mm. And it, it strikes me that it must it must apply this concept and this research across the board. Like I'm even thinking of kids at school and bullying and and how that sort of a threat against your identity too, isn't it? When you're trying to find who who you are, maybe as a teenager, and then somebody who's so different to you when you're maybe in an insecure place, um, just threatens your identity and and enhances or exacerbates the conflict. Um, that's probably not your area of research, but I'm just thinking it's it's such a wide, broad um, scope. This idea yeah. of trust and conflict, and how do you how do you bridge it? Yeah, and I think for one of the things what I found really important, because that's quite often my research gets mistaken from, right? Like it was often just take like, well, the problem gets, the honest is put on the group, which is either experienced conflict or have experienced um, discrimination and, um, and oppression. If they would just be more trusting, we wouldn't mm. have an issue. But that is not what my research is about. And that it's more about like the trust cannot be demanded it has to be earned, right? Like so, mm. and, um, the, and this is where it brings the timeline again, like um, which I mentioned before, like how can we, when we have a past of conflict, how can we uh, invasion a shared future? It is really like a longitudinal journey and trust is based quite rightfully on past experience. Mm. And it would be quite, like it's not really reasonable to ask people Disregard everything what happened until, until now. Disregard every experience you have made and just start with a blank, blank sheet and start trusting. Mm. That is not how it works. Mm. So we are dealing a little bit with a vicious circle, right? Like so, because of the past experience, it's natural and understanding why people keep like why groups keep each other as at uh, arm's length. But if we keep doing that. We are, we are not able to build trust. We are not able to move groups closer towards each other. Mm. And there are a couple of ways how we can build trust. Like there are, I think like there are three things which are rather important. The first one is really unpacking what are we talking about? Mm. 
And that is very much my research. Like what, when I say I trust you, or I trust the other group, like what is it, what we mean by that? Hmm. And I like, so I can trust my auto mechanic that he that he's fixing my, that they are fixing my car. Probably wouldn't tell them my deepest secret. But then I turn to my best friend and here now I, t- I trust them with my deepest secret because I trust their integrity that they wouldn't lie to me. Hmm. Or my, my close related to um, research I do on policing, for example, is uh, I can't trust the police that they are, have integrity, that they, like, which is, that they are not, um, that they're not corrupt. Hmm. So that is ba- that's integrity-based trust. I can also trust the police that they have some compassion for my community and what they're going through. It's compassion-based trust. I might trust another group that they're not getting out the guns and kill us, right? This is not security-based trust, like, or that they threaten my identity, who I am. So the question we talk about trust, we need to ask trust to do what, right? Like, so, and sometimes when we are building trust, it's like, like what happened quite often that I, if I want to become trustworthy, maybe as an academic, I try to signal how competent I am, but my students don't need that from me. They need to know that I see them as human beings, that I see the struggles they have. They need compassion-based trust, right? Mm. And that triggers all of that in a very different kind of engagement. Mm. And and in groups, too, like I'm just thinking of your police work and yeah. and how within a group, different people will have had different experiences of the police. So some yeah. people will implicitly trust them because they've never had a bad experience. And then some somebody else might have... And so how do you, um, you know, integrate different experiences when you're trying to um, create trust in a group? I mean, this, and that is really important. And it's, um, so the, the work I've, like, I, the research I've done, like I start, so I came to New Zealand via America, and I started the research in the police in America. We are trying to do similar work here in Aotearoa, but the data I have, the empirical data I have, this is mainly coming from the United States, which is clearly different than it's here. Mm. But um, I mean, what we do know beyond my research, like pretty much research is very consistently that ethnic minority groups, such as Black Americans, but also as Maori or Pacific Islanders, do trust the police consistently less than the white white population. Mm. And that is because police was built with a white population in mind. So there's some implicit mechanism which helps them better. Mm. And we show that. So we can show that in America very clearly. White Americans, I, did, I worked in Boston. So white people in Boston trusted the police incredibly well, but the black communities did not. Mm. And that didn't help the police so much because they knew that they, they had that gap. What they didn't know is how to bridge that gap. Mm. And um, what when we when we now break it down again, so and ask the question, why do white Americans trust the police? And that shows them actually they trusted the police that the police was full of integrity, right? They wouldn't lie, they would not um, take any bribes, and they would they follow a code of honor. But then we asked the black participants, like when they, their service has showed that this is they, they didn't trust the police because they found a lack of compassion-based trust. The perception of the police does not understand the needs uh, of their community and the compatibility-based trust. That the black communities have the feeling the police does not represent who they are. Mm. And when we are thinking about like, like trust building, I think what is quite important is to have that that shows why it's important to have a diverse community in that in the in the room where we think about how we do strategic trust building, because quite often, particularly from the police, the response was like, well. 
we need to catch the bad guys. If we get more police officers, faster arrest um, rate, then we're seeing as competent and trustworthy. Hmm. My data indicates that it's not it. Like, yes, of course, it matters to be competent. But if you catch the bad guys by also stopping every other black man on the street, that really erodes compassion-based trust. Mm. And if you can just think yourself, like, right, if you think about competence, you use different strategy, then if you want to build compassion-based trust, if you really want to signal, I understand where your community comes from. I understand where you're going through. Mm. And just like a final note, like while the majority of my work was done in the United States, I have done some um, piloting research here in Altura as well. And at least the pattern for Mari do replicate the pattern I have seen of Americans, like Americans. Mm. For Mari, we tend to see the same trends, mm. that it's compassion and compatibility-based trust, which is missing, particular if Mari has the feeling that they get stopped based on the ethnicity, like mm. they're feeling like this was racial discrimination, which led to my engagement with the police. Mm. Wow, this is fascinating. And I'm, I'm also wondering, as you're talking, does the makeup, like in your example of your area of research in particular, does the makeup of the police force affect the trust? So if, let's say, the police force itself is is much more diverse in ethnicity, are the people likely to trust them more? Does that play into it <laughs> <laughs> so that is some of the hopes right like so we are trying like um, i know that america undergoes trying to recruit more police officers of color we are doing the same here in Ontario, where we try to get more like liaisons police officers mm. and the answer would be it, it's of course it's always it's complicated mm. um what we see like there are two things like i respond first for america and then i respond here for Ottawa. Mm. what we're seeing in america because how the institution of police works and this is please take this one as a grain of salt because American police officers, they, um, um, units are different depending where you are, in which country, like in mm, which state. Mm. But generally speaking, there is a tendency like that, um, they, that there is a particular culture. And having, and this is what survey data has shown, it's not my data, but the survey data has shown like having in, in more people of police officers of colors does not necessarily increase the trust because sometimes the police officer are then not longer seen as an in-group member. They're now not seen as like, they're no longer part of the community, mm. they're actually part of the police because you are including the same oppressive rules. Mm. So it's not just enough mm. to hire people, uh, police officers of, culture, uh, of color, you need to have a culture change. Mm. And it's the same thing applies here to Arthur. Uh, like if we are starting to hire Maori police officer, a Pacific police officer and police officer of color, that by itself is the right step, but it's not enough. Hmm. We really have to think about how do we do policing and what are potential biases within our policing to make it really more equitable to all of the communities. Yeah. Wow. So it's it's complex, isn't it? And it uh, is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and thank God we have researchers like you working through this. <laughs> but because um, the other thing I'm thinking is like. So I know it's a buzzword right now, but the narrative, it keeps changing, doesn't it? Like our world is so changeable at the moment. And obviously yeah. social media is huge. I mean, COVID, I mean, there's so many things that are changing our world so quickly. So we have to respond, but change is hard for people, isn't it? And they and they resist it and they, they might hunker down and then maybe even um, 
uh, go stronger into their identity, the us and them. I don't know. Is that a is that a a thing? <laughs> uh, so it is a thing. And again, like so here, it's not my expertise. Like the people who are doing wonderful research on that, much more. They're much would be much more competent to talk on it than I am. But so there is, we, we have some personality traits. We know that that some people are more open to change than others. Mm. And some like so it's like, like um, some thrive on changes. Other kind of prefer like consistency, predictability. But then with an increased threat perception, and I mean, COVID clearly is that, mm. and, and also conflict is an increased threat perception, that tends to swing groups and like people towards being more a higher need of predictability mm. and less open to change and novelty. And it does like it, it's this, this lethal combination because that also tries us more into this mental mental aspect of them thinking it's, it's it doesn't drive us with but it's much easier to be built mm. and like and if you then let me talk now about conflict right like if you then get like political leaders who build on that it's it's right there rightness like you quickly create this aspect of them and create in like intergroup conflict between countries or between groups wow i find all this stuff very fascinating and actually our time is is running out here but um I always say we can have our guests back because there's so much we could talk about. And one thing I just wanted to clarify to some of our listeners because um, we we keep mentioning Aotearoa, which people of New Zealand will know is the Maori name for New Zealand, but like my family and Mariska's family might listen in and not know what that means. So I just wanted to clarify that. So um, so this has been really fun for me because Mariska is actually a friend of mine and I, we talk about work occasionally, but we don't often delve this deeply into what Mariska does. Um, Mariska originally hails from Germany, and as she, <laughs> as she said, she spent a lot of time in the States and now lives here with her family, which is cool. But I just wanted to tell a quick story about how I met Mariska, because I was going to say it at the beginning, but um, I think Mariska's my only friend who I've met at a cafe. <laughs> we were... We were um, I was there with my family and Mariska was there working and uh, she noticed our little son and I, I noticed her kept looking at him and smiling and then in the end she asked where um, we got Anton's jeans from because she finds it hard to find clothes here for little children not being from here. And anyway, we just started talking and found out we had lots in common including sons of similar ages and so... We were about to go to the States. This was obviously many years ago when we were able to travel. And I think we were walking out the door and I said to my husband, I'm going to go back and give that woman my card. <laughs> so I always say, I picked Mariska up at a cafe. <laughs> I'm so glad you gave me this card. Like it was, yeah, no, it was very, it was wonderful to meet you so early on here in Dunedin. Yeah, because you had just arrived, yeah. hadn't you? Yes, I did. And as, yeah, things like, how do I navigate up shops? Where do I get clothes for my child? It's just like a whole new thing. I know. I love. It's huge, isn't it? When you're yeah. just immigrating. But um, so we'll, we'll close up here um, with the question that we ask um, all of our guests at the end of our show. And the question is, Mariska, what advice would you offer your younger self or advice you wish you had heard as a younger woman um, that would have helped you on your journey? I thought about this question a lot. And so we talked mainly about my work and not much about um, like, so 
like um yeah which is like so one of the things what happened like i had a lot of kind of things did not always go smooth in my life mm. and i always had a picture of myself that i grew up at one point i gonna be this calm mature person <laughs> i don't think i ever get there <laughs> but i was always waiting that things would get easier mm. and honestly they did not get easier things mm. still go wrong i still have crisis and they're still really hard mm. and i really wish younger Mariska had known two things or have been told two things like a it is not getting easier and mm. that's okay mm. but also that we are having this the resilience and the ingenuity to deal with the crisis that come mm. that doesn't mean it makes it easier go away but we'll be able to get through them mm. like you mean like you learn along the way um skills to help you through the the conflict a bit better or the crisis yeah. or the crisis a bit better yeah and i mean like some of like so right like i experienced lose uh, lose uh, my uh, quite quite early on and that still hurts today mm. and it's not going away so it's more like it's it's not that things yeah it's just like but that we're having the resilience to work through that and ingenuity to not yeah explain what you said if i find the skills like building up i skills how to get through it and to adapt mm. and it's not and not every yeah, it's not that every lemon you've given you can turn into eliminate mm. but it's not the end of the world you can continue like you there will be other pathways opening up maybe not the one you wanted mm. but still quite a rich one oh that's lovely yeah thank you for that um it's always if only we had known these things earlier but i think it's part of the journey isn't it you even if we had been told um as yeah. a 15 or 20 or 25 year old we might not have believed it anyway but it's good to offer what we've learned along the way to our listeners so thank you for sharing <laughs> your advice and your wisdom and about your research that was really fascinating and until next time with our next Wondering Woman guest. Have a good week and kakiteano. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.